All right, guys, good morning and welcome. We are continuing to look at the Gospel of John. And one of the things that we have said since we planted Redemption Church is that we want this to be both a place where people who grew up in the church or in a religious household come to know Jesus and where people who are far from God and have no religious background come to know Jesus. And I think what we're doing this morning is we're kind of subdividing those categories. And what I mean by that is last week, we interacted with this guy named Nicodemus in John chapter three. And Nicodemus was a successful religious person. He was somebody who grew up in the church and was able to kind of keep all of the rules and keep his nose clean. Now, we are going to be interacting with the woman at the well. And she is, kind of contrary to popular belief, also a religious person. She's just a screw-up. So she grew up in the church, but she kind of grew up in the wrong church, and then rebelled against that church, and ended up living a life of immorality. And what we're going to see in the text is sort of a fulfillment of last week's text. Remember, Jesus said to this proud man, Nicodemus, that God loved the whole world. He didn't just love people who were upstanding moral citizens in the church. He also loves failures and outsiders. And we're going to see that this text proves Jesus' word So what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus quenches human thirst. In the same way that your body needs water to live, your spirit needs Jesus to live. So the first thing we're going to see is one of the ways that we try to chase down satisfying or quenching this thirst on our own. And we're going to see the emptiness of religion. So let's read again in verses 7 through 14. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So for a Jew reading this text, this would have been incredibly surprising. That Jesus is in Samaria in the first place would have been surprising but then that he is sitting down at a well and engaging, not just a Samaritan, but a Samaritan 
woman in conversation would have been shocking. The text simply says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-other cultures around, which was anathema. Jews were supposed to marry Jews and procreate with Jews, and that's it. And anyone who did anything different was automatically viewed as an outsider. As a result of them being half-breeds, they were also political outsiders, and they were religious outsiders. And so Jews, pure Jews, viewed them as unclean and would not even pass through Samaria, but would go around Samaria even if it took them longer to do so. Also, as a result of them being half-breeds, they were also religiously just a little bit off. And so the Jews considered them to be heretics. In addition to the fact that this woman is a Samaritan, she is also a she. And a woman's testimony, even if she was Jewish, was not even admissible in court in this day. Women were viewed, maybe not even as second-class citizens, but as third-class citizens. You could, as a man, divorce a woman for any reason that you please. So they were incredibly economically and socially vulnerable. And so Jesus is breaking just about every social convention you could possibly break by engaging in conversation with this woman in Samaria. And he asks a seemingly very innocent question. Give me a drink. And she's like, just a second. What's your agenda here? Why are you asking me for a drink? And he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink and I'd give you living water. That's weird. She's caught off guard by that. And she immediately thinks that Jesus is trying to engage her in a debate about which group of people is superior, Jews or Samaritans. So she says, don't you know where we are right now? So Jesus and the Samaritan woman happen to be sitting at Jacob's well, the ancient forefather of Israel, Jacob, his well. And the Samaritans took incredible pride in the fact that this well was on their land. And they used it as a point of boasting. See, even though we're half-breeds, we're the real people of God, because why else would this well be here on our land? And so she says to Jesus, are you better than our father, Jacob? Are you superior to him? Do you have better water than he has? So you see, the conversation at this point is happening at two levels. Yes, they're talking about water, but what they're really talking about is the deeper tension between Samaritans and Jews. Who are the true people of God? 
And so when Jesus says to her, if you drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again, he's not talking about H2O. He's saying, if you drink of the water of your religious pedigree, if you think religiously, you are going to be thirsty again. What he's identifying in her is something that is true of many of us. And that is, we take pride in our religion. We take pride in our racial background, in our cultural background, in our church background, in such a way that we use our doctrine to say to other people, you're out, I'm in, and by the way, I am incredibly superior to you. Now, we would never just come out and say that, but we carry ourselves in such a way that we're saying to everyone around us, you're less than me. Now, it's been identified by sociologists over the past several years that the religious climate of the United States of America has changed. It used to be that the primary religions in America were Protestant and Catholic. But now, the primary religions of America are Republican and Democrat. And we see people on both sides of the aisle holding their political views with religious zeal. This is why Families have split. People haven't talked to each other. There are angry riots where groups are throwing rocks at each other in the streets. The reason for that is because politics is the new religion in America. And just like the woman at the well, we can easily turn our belief system, right or wrong, into our righteousness. And Jesus is saying to her and to us, if you drink from that well, you are going to be thirsty again. You see, Jesus has a different kind of water for us. Not the water of religious pedigree and a feeling of superiority to others, but as we will see, he has water of grace. See, acceptance with God is not based on who you are at all. Acceptance with God is based on whose you are. And Jesus says to her, listen, contrary to my Jewish upbringing, contrary to who it looks like I am, I am not judging you based on what you look like or where you're from or even the beliefs that you grew up with. I judge on entirely different terms. Because religion is a dry well, an empty pursuit that will leave you angry and hateful and empty. Okay? 
So first of all, we see in the text the emptiness of religion. Second of all, we see the dryness of idolatry. Verse 15. We're going to read to verse 23. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Okay, so you see... The woman is engaging Jesus in this sort of socio-religious debate. But Jesus is a master at talking about the real issue. And he says, I see what you're trying to do. So he says, okay, to continue the conversation, why don't you go call your husband and we'll keep talking? And she says, I have no husband. Can you imagine this moment? This guy looks you straight in the eyes and says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. And you can almost feel like the shame go through your own body, just identifying and empathizing with this woman. Holy cow. And you can see her trying to grab the words. She's like, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then what does she do? She does what all of us would have done. She runs for cover. She tries to find the closest place that she can think of to hide. And so she runs back to the religious debate. And she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. What's she doing there? See, Jews believed that God was to be worshiped in Jerusalem. Samaritans believed that God was to be worshiped on Mount Gerizim, which is where they're standing. And she's saying to him, okay, let's get back into that religious debate. And Jesus is identifying that he knows why she's there at the time that she's there. See, what's happened is a place of religious significance for the woman, Jacob's well, on Mount Gerizim, has become the place for her of her deepest shame. 
Her religious idealism has shattered her into a place of shame. You see, this woman is at this well at noon, the text says. Why is she there at noon? That is the worst time ever to go grab water. It's the heat of the day. She's there at noon because she can no longer go to the well with all of the other women at 8 o'clock in the morning or whenever it is because she is a social outcast because she is seen as nothing more than a whore. She's a young woman. Five husbands. Man she's living with is now not her husband. She has socially ostracized herself through her own appetite and idolatry for men. Which is, if you think about it, totally understandable to any of us who have been religious failures. What has her experience been? She grew up in the church. There were these high ideals. She believed the doctrines. She believed that sexual immorality was wrong. She believed that divorce was wrong. But the religion was unable to quench the thirst of her soul. See, what she wanted deep down inside was security that would take away her fear, which was love that would meet the desires of her soul, and it wasn't met in religion. So what wasn't met in religion, she decided to try to find in men. And so she went from man to man to man to man, and every guy that she ended up marrying or the guy that she lived with, they told her, they looked her right in the eyes, and they told her that they loved her, and they told her that they would take care of her. And she didn't know why. She felt stupid about it. Every single time she went through the divorce process, she can't believe, I can't believe I believed that jerk again. Why did I do that? Why do I always fall for the bad guy who ends up treating me like crap and yet I believe the same lie over and over and over again? Why do I do that? You know why she did that? Because she thought the only alternative to elicit desire to sin was religion. And there's no pleasure at all in religion, so why not go to elicit desire? And so her life reminds me of that old Atari game, Pong. Do you remember that game? My grandparents had this. They had, this was when TVs were pieces of furniture, and they... They have like a wood casing around them and there was no remote control and you had to go up and press the button to turn it on. And my grandparents had this old game Pong and you had this little joystick and on one side, it was like three pixel ping pong paddle. You guys know what I'm talking about? And then you had a three pixel ping pong paddle here and then a one pixel ping pong ball in the middle and it would bounce back and forth. Boom, boom, boom. And that was like the whole game, right? But we didn't have any video games at home, so that was the only video game I had access to. So I would play that game sometimes for hours at my grandparents' house with somebody else, even though it was literally the stupidest video game of all time, the most mind-numbing, boring video game ever made, and yet somehow strangely addictive. This is the game that this woman is playing. She's been playing it her whole life. 
See, we want to put her in a category. She's a religious person or she's a slut. She's not in either category. She's both at the same time. And so many of us can relate to that position. We bounce between religion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it right. I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go back to what I believed in the past. Or we jump into, I'm going to party Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. And then we wake up and the hangover is not that bad on Sunday. So I'm going to go back to church. And maybe that's you and you're here right now. And here's what Jesus is about to do. He's about to pick up the Atari in my grandparents' living room and smash it against the wall. He's about to say, you don't have to play this game anymore because there's something new here. It's not religion and it's not illicit desire. It's grace. And so that's what we're going to see finally in this text the fountain of grace. Here's what Jesus says to this woman. Verses 24 through 29. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Okay, so Jesus says, this is the way that you're thinking. You're asking yourself the question, are people supposed to worship God on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem? And Jesus had said earlier in the text, the answer is Jerusalem. But a new era has dawned. And God is not worshipped in places anymore. He is worshipped in spirit and truth. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, here's what God wants. Yes, he wants you to believe the right thing but he wants you. That's what it means to worship in spirit. See, Jesus is looking this woman in the eyes, knowing everything about her, knowing the game that she's been playing, knowing the sin that she's been committing, knowing the ways that she's trying to satisfy her own soul, both in religion and in illicit desire, and he's looking at her and he's saying, God wants you. Not the you that you wish you were, the you that you are right now, the ashamed you, the you who is at the well in the middle of the day 
because you can't even face up to your neighbors anymore because of your laundry list of stupid choices related to men and all of your adultery and all of your illicit relationships and the way that that's completely destroyed your life. It's like, I want that you. You can worship me. You can come into my presence. Because the ultimate truth that Jesus wants us to believe is that he is Messiah for sinners. See, both the Samaritans and the Jews got it all wrong. They thought that the Messiah would come for the good people. They thought Messiah would come for the right people. The racially right people, the socially right people, the religiously right people. And Jesus is saying, this is the truth. This is what the Bible has always been about. God loves sinners. And so Jesus looks at the completely wrong person. The wrong woman. The woman that he's not even supposed to be talking to at the wrong place in Samaria on the wrong mountain. And she says to him, okay, I think you're talking a little above your pay grade right now. I know you're a Jewish rabbi, but she says when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us things like this. And you can see Jesus' eyes light up, can't you? Like, this is the perfect time for this. Now, if you flip back in the Gospel of John, he hasn't told anybody this yet. And he tells the woman of Samaria. You can almost see it. It's almost a whisper. Because his disciples are coming. Like, you can kind of see them out of your peripheral vision. They're coming. And he looks at the woman of Samaria, and he's like, I know. That's my name. I'm the Messiah. Why does he say, I am him to her? Because if he's her Messiah, he's your Messiah. If he loves her, he can love anybody. Because she's the completely wrong person for him to love. And what is he telling us about the new religion that he is bringing? It's not a religion at all. It's a relationship and it's not based on your performance, and you can't earn it, and because you can't earn it, you can't unearn it. It is a relationship 100% based on the gracious heart of God. It's because he's gracious that she and we are accepted, not because she or we are good. And then Jesus seals the deal. Impeccable timing. The disciples come up at that exact moment. He has just said, I am he, and the disciples show up. Here's what she's expecting. Even though the conversation has been life-changing, earth-shattering, he just told her that he's the Messiah, here's what she's expecting to happen. You can feel the tension by that well. The disciples are thinking, he's talking to a woman. She's a Samaritan woman. She's at the well at the wrong time. What is he doing? They're 
all expecting Jesus to sort of back away apologetically. I'm sorry, guys, I ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. I know I shouldn't be talking to this woman. I'm sorry, this is kind of embarrassing. You guys caught me. And you're expecting him to slowly exit the scene. Instead, the disciples come up and Jesus does not move a muscle. He's on the wrong mountain. He's with the wrong woman. He's in the wrong place. And he doesn't move a muscle. What is he saying to his disciples and to all of us? I'm with her. This is who I came for. This is my daughter. I love her. I'm her Messiah. And this flood of grace breaks over the heart of this lost woman. And it dawns on her for the first time that this is the water she's been looking for her whole life. She couldn't find it in religion. She couldn't find it in illicit desire. And it broke onto her soul. And poetically, John writes, she left the water jar there. What's he saying? She understood that she could not satisfy her own thirst, either through religion or sinning, but that her soul thirst would forever be quenched in this person who she met at this well on this day. Her soul was quenched by the grace and the loving acceptance of Jesus. And then she did what every sinner has ever done when grace breaks into their soul and dawns on them. You can see her. She is darting back toward the town in Samaria where she's from. And her message is incredibly simple to the rest of the townspeople. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. What? What changed? Hours earlier, she had been in that town hanging her head, ashamed of her sin. Her sin hadn't changed. What had changed was that she understood that her acceptance did not come from her being good, but from the grace of God breaking into her soul. And so she is totally free to just like, yep, this is me. Guys, she's running around the street saying, this guy who claims to be the Messiah just told me that I've been sleeping around for years. And everyone's like, huh? Like, we haven't seen you for a long time. Seems like you're always hiding in your house. And now this woman, her face is glowing. She has tears of joy streaming down her face. And we see later on in the text, the whole town is changed by this. 
They're like, wait a second. We haven't been sleeping around. We haven't been divorced all these times. Or maybe we have. And yet, we're filled with shame. And yet, our thirst hasn't been quenched. And yet, we're lost and without hope. If she has hope, maybe there's hope for us too. And so we are invited by this story to put down our jars, to leave them, to understand that we haven't earned an ounce of grace by our good behavior. Because grace isn't earned. It comes fully and freely from the heart of Jesus to us. So we leave our jar of religious performance by the well. But we also leave our jar of illicit desire. We go back and we look at the people we've slept with or the pornography that we've looked at or the sexual sin that we've fantasized about, and we say, you know what? That has left me parched, empty, and ashamed. And so we leave that jar there too, and we're like, man, how could I have been so stupid? Why was I chasing after those things? And we see clearly now that the thing we've really wanted is the security and satisfaction and pleasure that comes from the love of Jesus alone. And so what's the application of this message? Like, do we walk back through this and do we say, okay, I've got to find a well that I've got to try to meet Jesus at and I've got to try to, you know, set up the scene perfectly and, or maybe put some candles in a room and invite the presence of Jesus in or I've got to make sure that I have quiet times at this time or like how do you set up this kind of encounter? Here's the application. You don't have to do anything. You see, this meeting that Jesus had with this woman was 100% on his initiative. It was a surprise encounter to her, which is what makes it grace. It's free. And here's what I want you to leave with if you've never had an encounter like this with Jesus before. Maybe you're having it right now, which would be amazing, but I want you to leave with this. It could happen anywhere at any time to anyone. You might not believe this message right now, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to be walking through Aldi five years from now, and all of a sudden, you're going to finally get to a breaking point like this woman's at. You're going to get tired of that ping pong ball life of sin and shame and coming to church occasionally. And, and you're just going to be standing there. And all of a sudden, the living Christ is going to meet you by the baked beans. And you're going to be standing there and it is going to like, whoa, holy cow. And you are going to know from that day forward, that you are a child of God. See, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And we 
get to experience that and we get to pray for that and we get to be surprised over and over again. See guys, one of the things I love most about this church is the diversity of people that God has saved over time. And I can't point to anything that we've done in particular that's been special, that's invited people into relationship with Jesus, except for just look at the text and try to the best of our ability to say what it says and then live out the message of grace the best that we can in the relationships that we have as leaders and students in our church. But here's what Jesus has done. Since Redemption Church was planted six years ago, 339 different people have been baptized in our church from a variety of different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different places. But the common thread of all of the stories has been an encounter with the grace of Jesus. See, we are, one of our elders said this week at our elder meeting, Loved it. Rob Wassenauer, he said, I am the woman at the well. And I said, I was like looking around because we were in a coffee shop meeting and I was like, you know, I don't want too many people over here. You say, I am a woman because that's, that's what he said. But, but what he was saying was, here's the thing. We're all that person. We, okay, if you're new, if you're new to church, new to this room, what I don't want you to think leaving this morning is to look around and think, I could never be in on this because I'm not a good person. Anybody can get in on this because it's for terrible people like me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the woman at the well. Because she is us. We have been broken by our illicit desire at times and by our religious performance. And sometimes we're bouncing back and forth between the two. And Jesus, for those of us who are saved, it's only because you have said to us, I am he. And so we've rejoiced. We've said, he told me everything that I ever did. And that's been a good thing to us. God, for those of us who, who maybe in this message, we're remembering our salvation and we've kind of, we've clammed up, we've stopped confessing sin, we've stopped owning our brokenness. Would you remind us that it started with grace, it continues with grace. And for those who grew up religious and have been trying to earn it, would you meet them with your grace? And those that are stuck in patterns of unsatisfying illicit desire would you meet them with your grace jesus thank you that you are the same yesterday today and forever that you're here would you meet us here in jesus name